This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 is brought to you by Vits for Good. The moment is, of course, both this virus and a range of other things around it that draw attention to the wider things that anthropologists regard as important. So that includes, at present, Black Lives Matter. And what was mattering two weeks ago or 10 days ago was not the murder of George Floyd. It was the fact that the people who are most vulnerable to coronavirus in the United States were black. This is Vitz Impact for Good, and I'm Eusebius McKaiser. In this episode, we are introduced to the field of medical anthropology through the work of Professor Lenore Manderson. How does medical practice and clinical research intersect with anthropology and the study of human beings and their behavior? With ongoing conversations around the novel coronavirus and social activism like the Black Lives Matter movement, what role do anthropologists play in understanding the true impact of the crises on the most vulnerable, marginalized in society. Are governments taking seriously the work and methodologies of those tasked with investigating the way communities are impacted by disease and social conflict? What's interesting, you know, with aging is that you've got people increasingly having to navigate their lives around certain constraints like taking medication or limited mobility and so on and now increasingly fewer people to help care for them. In this podcast series we engage with WITS originators who through their activism, academia and research projects are challenging the way we tackle the world's most pressing issues. Through their intense study of aging, Professor Manderson has examined the social conditions in which people live and how these contribute to ill health later in life. How do societies care for the elderly and frail? And is there any truth in the myth that most societies underinvest in their care for the aged, unlike the way they treat babies and the very young? Understanding the demographics of society and those who are tasked with providing care within the household may be key to understanding how the most vulnerable are cared for and the complexities associated with this duty of care. Professor Lenore Manderson is a distinguished professor of public health and medical anthropology in the School of Public Health. Thank you so much for being part of this Vits Originators podcast series. My pleasure. It's lovely to be online. I want to get straight into the academic stuff before we talk about your intellectual biography, if I might, Professor. Medical anthropology is that someone who dropped out of medical school and pursued the liberal arts? Or is it a liberal arts person who wanted to show that they also understand biology? <laughs> um, well, it could, have been, it could have been either, couldn't it? Um, in my case, it's about originally actually thinking about doing medicine, but ending up at a university that didn't offer medicine and um, discovering that what I was doing and what I was able to do, and that really has been, you know, a lifelong achievement, gave me great freedom um, in terms of exploring ideas and in in having a a broad view of things so that I have a strong, you know, sense of the way in which anthropology allows one to, to pursue certain 
areas, um, and that includes both at an individual and at a population level. But I was also very lucky that I've always held full chairs in medical schools, so I've probably been closer to non-anthropologists and to looking at clinical practice and biomedical research than many medical anthropologists. So I do have a strong sense of an understanding of the importance of biology and the relationship between medicine as a practice and medicine as a body of theory. It's a profound year we're living through for your discipline and I want you to speak into that. We are dealing with a virus that is humbling us as a species, the COVID-19 coronavirus. And we have approached this mostly with scientism in the classic sense of that term. And I haven't seen governments around the world rushing to speak to anthropologists to understand how populations construct experience and respond qua human beings to disease and virology. Has it surprised you or is it because Um, the liberal arts is generally on the margins of relationships with the state, even in a time of pandemic? It hasn't surprised me. I mean, I think that the truism is that, you know, anthropologists are brought in late and are brought in to check questionnaires and that's about it. Um, I think that there is a difference in this and and although anthropologists have not dominated airspace or um, television time with their own views, I personally have never been as busy um, with than I have been in the past and I do think that part of it is about the fact that the only way we can control at present, the levels of infection is attending to human behaviour and social relationships. We don't have a virus. We don't have inoculations. We don't even know much about the virus because it's new virus. And so anthropologists have been in a unique place. So one, I've been captured by that, but you also raise questions about the moment. And the moment is, mm. of course, both this virus and a range of other things around it that draw attention to the wider things that anthropologists regard as important. So that includes, at present, Black Lives Matter. George Floyd. George Floyd repeatedly told the officers that he could not breathe after an officer knelt on his neck. The family of George Floyd held the memorial in his memory. In Washington, D.C., a street just blocks from the White House, now painted in the words of our country's call for justice. The city putting Black Lives Matter in giant yellow letters on the street. Right now, we're focused on Black Lives, because right now, I can be outside jogging with my dog in the morning and get shot. That's not right. That's why Black Lives Matter, and that's why we're out here today. And what was mattering two weeks ago or 10 days ago was not the murder of George Floyd. It was the fact that the people who are most vulnerable to coronavirus in the United States were black anyway. And the people who are most vulnerable anywhere in the world are people who are poor and do not have the luxury of being able to isolate in the same way, um, who are frustrated who have 
limited access to resources to help them get through an incredibly difficult time. So if we weren't having a discussion about racism now, then when would we ever have it? Mm. And I think that that applies earlier too, that when coronavirus first became an issue, it was the pandemic surprised everyone, partly because it, because scientists assumed that the next big crisis we would have would be antibiotic resistance. Mm. And then suddenly out of the blue, we have a different kind of health problem. Mm. But antibiotic resistance is still a major problem staring us down the face. Um, global warming is still threatening life as we know it. And now, I mean, people have said this is the rehearsal for the really big crises that are lining up and are about to happen if we don't take decisive action. And in that context, then what anthropologists are able to do is to participate in that discussion about the challenges in terms of human behaviour in understanding social fault lines of society and who is at greater risk and then what the responsibilities of governments are. In plain terms, how does that make your career and your job different to a sociologist? What do anthropologists do and distinguish yourself from sociology? You know, at one level, there is not a huge amount of difference and many sociologists work similarly. Um, to anthropologists, social anthropologists largely are looking at meaning-making and, and sociology um, does tend to, to invest more in broader patterns across society rather than to drill down. And so in that respect, there is a difference. I think it's partly a, a difference around theories and what kind of theory different um, anthropologists or sociologists use. But I do think there's a richness in the work of anthropology, which is an attention to the everyday life of people that gives it its unique um, its uniqueness and an empathy with what is happening. I want to drill down into the value of medical anthropology specifically and maybe frame the question, Lenore, as follows. Beyond collecting, which is not to trivialize this because this is important in itself, but beyond collecting stories of yes. the first person accounts of, say, illness, the critical work that a medical anthropologist does, how does it help to illuminate our experience? of illness? Um, I think it's in fact critical in terms of understanding the um, patterns and the distribution of illnesses and therefore provides information directly into policy making and government practice. One of the crises at present I mean, we, we are living in a crisis of government in many parts of the world and coronavirus pandemic has precipitated that crisis and that raises questions around um, what is the government for? And the government is clearly supposed to be for more than uh, maintaining a military and printing money. Hmm. though it's not always clear that they do much more than that. I think what anthropology does is feed into that debate and consistently highlight how um, states need to invest in populations 
and what populations expect from states. So it's a way of sense-making across different structures, and that includes international and local, between countries, within communities, within households and within families. And there is an attention for any anthropologist around all of those different levels, which you asked earlier about sociologists. Mm. And there is less attention, I think, in a lot of sociology work in the articulation between those different levels of social life. How do you you get to understand, in terms of methodology, for a layperson, explain what the tools of the trade are? If I experience illness, for example, phenomenologically, it's a deeply Mm. subjective experience, whether it be Mm -hmm. the COVID-19 symptoms, common cold, tuberculosis, HIV, morphing eventually into AIDS, deeply, deeply, deeply personal. How do you as an anthropologist go about making sense of in-population groups, experiences of illness, given the inherent subjectivity of our experience bodily of being ill? One, we, we live with the contradictions, but I think that whilst each person's illness is unique, there are patterns and, and there are predictabilities. And, of course, that's not just what anthropologists work on, but also what doctors or other health professionals work on. You know, if someone presents with a particular condition, then their reported symptoms take priority in terms of working out what's wrong with them. They're not dismissed Hmm. and you know no clinician says well very nice that that's what you experience let's just check your blood (laughs) and then I'll tell you what trouble they might actually but you know ideally that's not going to happen having said that there are broader patterns that are important so it's not just the individual experience but it's also how that individual is positioned in relation to others who cares for that person understandings of questions around causality around diagnosis around care and management of a health condition around prognosis and they're not arbitrary and they're not individualistic so that while People might have individual stories, for example, around different kinds of cancers. Mm. In the end, we are able to generalise and to bring to the fore broader meanings around, for example, the importance of providing support where people have to continue with medication and understanding the way in which that lack of support will strip people of a motivation to continue with medications and so on. So I think in that respect, there's constantly a worrying away around what is social and shared by people versus what is unique. Um, But the other way, of course, is to say, well, there isn't all that much that's unique. We may feel that we're living unique existences, but... You know, right now, millions of people around the world are all living very similar lives. They're watching television, if they've got television, eating if they've got food, sleeping and worrying and staying inside their houses. And so we're able to say, well, they might be lonely, they may be frightened still, certainly uncertain, anxious, and there's a whole range of 
feelings and emotions and affect that goes with that that requires some kind of intervention. And then what we also know is that human society and particular individuals will predictably find opportunities in that to work against that which is problematic. So you, as well as me, will be aware not only that people are learning online or having conversations online, but increasingly people are living social lives through Mm. Um, their computers or their cell phones. So doing yoga or exercises of other kinds mm. online. And and so there's this constant invention that people engage with in order to maintain the importance of social connection, which is a key to what it means to be human. I want to move to a different theme and introduce listeners of this podcast series to a different part of your research what is, besides its potential applications for helping the state and society to be more caring towards the elderly, tell us what is so intellectually enriching about studying from a medical anthropology point of view, ageing? Um, again, I think for me, and, and all of us have, have different entry points, for me what's interesting about that is that as people age, they accrue conditions. And it's not that people are incredibly healthy and have nothing wrong with them usually, and then suddenly at 60 or 70 or 80, depending on who they are or where they live mostly, they get a condition which is then going to threaten their life. It's that there is this constant layering of assaults to the body Mm. And I think teasing apart those assaults and relating them to the social conditions in which people live are really important. And a lot of them are are incredibly perplexing and difficult to tease apart so that there are relationships between them. So we do know that stress can cause diabetes and stress can cause heart disease, but equally someone who has diabetes or someone who has heart disease will become stressed. Stress hmm. may under conditions then lead to depression. So then you have, you know, and and diabetes itself can then lead to cardiovascular problems such as hypertension and heart disease. So you get this interplay at a biologic level and it also interplays with social factors, both within the home and for the individual and within society. And then what's what's interesting, you know, with ageing is that you've got people increasingly having to navigate their lives around certain constraints like taking medication or limited mobility and so on. And now increasingly fewer people to help care for them. And a dilemma that we're very, all of us pretty well, are very comfortable caring for young people and, and for little babies. And in the same way that we're perfectly happy to play with and, and cuddle puppies and so on. But we're not particularly as comfortable about caring for older people. I mean, nobody, and, and so that there is a real dilemma. I want to, if I may intervene here, ask you two related footnoted questions to that. Mm-hmm. Firstly, how universal is that tendency to underinvest in chronic care for aging parts of the population? And mm. 
related to that, maybe it's a variation of the question even, are there some mm. societies that actually pay beautiful attention to the aging process instead of seeing it as Professor Mandison has one foot in the grave, as it were? <laughs> Thank you. Um, see, I think that there's a lot of myth-making around um, societies who care for their elderly and show lots of respect to, for them and so on. And arguably in small-scale societies and in societies that aren't highly technical or, or mechanised and so on, it may be true. I think Indigenous Australian societies actually give enormous respect to elders and there is this constant, you know, reference to elders as having knowledge and that is unique. It doesn't necessarily translate into a capacity to care, but certainly the respect for an older person is there. I mean, you know, there, there is a, a re way to reflect on that, which is what has changed that makes it harder to be older now? Mm. And part of the answer has always been around demographics, you know, that as families have got smaller, then people have been left on their own and therefore they've got no one to help them. I think the other thing, though, is, and it goes back to your earlier question, that historically we had far fewer things um, in a kind of, in an arsenal in order to care for multiple conditions. So it wasn't that there were very large numbers of people with very different family or personal backgrounds who were living to old age and, and you know, increased people did used to die from a heart attack when they were 50 and that was it and, and they were not going to be able to get to a tertiary centre and receive care. And I think, I mean, the same clearly is true with medication and I think that older people now do live with more health problems than in the past and some of those health problems are seriously confronting. Mm. And, you know, I think that not just um, HIV, you know, is implicated in terms of some dementia, certainly Alzheimer's is a problem. But people who have diabetes and, and heart disease are at risk of getting vascular dementia and people who are demented who can't care for themselves mm. can be very difficult to care for and very demanding on families. And that is really a point that, you know, creates big difficulties both in households at a point when the individual who's ageing is deeply confused and doesn't understand why. And, you know, I am old enough that I have now watched various friends deal with parents who have died or, or are now very, very elderly with dementia and the it it creates enormous demands on on people to care for elders and to make decisions around should someone be cared for at home or should they be cared for in a care centre if they're cared for in a residential care centre is that in some way um, opting out of some kind of responsibility yeah. to a parent, will they have the same quality of care and so on? And mm. I don't think actually we've resolved that very well. Mm. The rest of it is that we haven't resolved the fact that large numbers of people really don't have people who can care for them well or can afford to care for them well. Right. And as a country, we haven't come to terms with that. So mm. the work that I'm doing 
and and hoping to get back to very soon in Pumalanga really does look at who provides care. And that's in terms of all kinds of different families because it's not that we can also talk about the traditional family um, or the, you know, traditional society or traditional values or anything else. And so it's not necessarily true that there is a small um, number of women in every household sitting around and their next job after the children have left home is to care for elders and that's the end of a story. So gender makes complex ageing and caring. Poverty makes complex ageing and caring. Race and ethnicity and the things that go with that make it difficult also, and being in a rural area makes it also difficult. So I think that the point about ageing is that, again, it provides a way of drilling down into the complexities of households and families and their relationship to the state. That's beautifully put. So much that I'd love to pursue, but we're coming to the end of this podcast Second last question, Professor. Medicine have in recent history focused more on a question that used to be on the margins of medicine, which is preventative medicine, rather than seeing the body as a diseased vessel that needs to be intervened in at the point at which symptoms are showing up. We pay increasingly attention to the question how to live well. You and I have spoken about illness, disease, aging. Are there sub-disciplines within your field or even research areas you have embarked on that don't only try and understand the experiences of individuals and populations vis-a-vis disease burdens, but also in relation to questions around wellness? Well, in multiple levels, that's true, because I think public health as a field and medical anthropology is part of a larger group of professions in public health is concerned with helping people live well. Um, And so you could argue, for example, that um, discouraging people from smoking was about getting helping people live well. Similarly, addressing questions of food deserts so people had good food was about wellness, not illness. It was preventive in that respect. So I think that in that respect it is, and I think very old public health. I mean, the whole, the issues that we're so looking at... What I mean, I get, guess, if I, if I may gently, I, yeah. I agree with you, but the spirit of my question is, and let's put it plainly, there is, of course, a difference between opting out of smoking a cigarette and opting into going to the gym. Um, Yes, it is. And the difference between opting to go to a gym assumes that everybody shares a definition of what being healthy is, which goes back to physical health, and that they have the money to do it. And one of the things that irritates me most, I think, are interventions around preventing diabetes and preventing heart disease by preventing obesity on the assumption that everybody has the same choice around food. And we live in a society in South Africa, but we do in Australia too, where not everybody has their own home or even their own kitchen or a stove or a fridge. And so to expect that everybody is going to suddenly be able to be 
able to purchase foods that might be healthy for them and to store them and to cook them appropriately um, is nonsense. And, and so, again, it goes back to understanding the way in which social fault lines shape people's health risks and health opportunities. Mm. And I think that that's at the core of what anthropology offers, which is to say, well, it's, you know, and then relating to that, of course, is that there's a lot of opportunism there. So that you say going to a gym will also, I mean, private medical insurers are interested in people going to a gym and, and encourage them to do it because they don't have to pay out then. Pharmaceutical companies are interested in preventive medicine so that people increasingly are treated for pre-diabetes or yeah. indicators that they might have a heart condition such as um, tablets to lower cholesterol and so on. And so we end up on drugs for life in order to prevent us getting a disease that we may never get in the first plan. So business is very invested Absolutely. in healthy living. Last question. You do not sound like you got your accent in Pumalanga where you're doing research. Tell us about your love affair with these two different countries and how you've ended up at Wits University and doing work here in South Africa, even though this recording is taking place transcontinentally. Okay, so I came back here because my husband was with me in, this, in South Africa as, as COVID-19 ramped up and, and we were advised to come back and because of um, health insurance we came back here and my kids were here. So I'm Australian and I, came, I started coming to South Africa originally in 1995. I was actually in Johannesburg during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And then I went back in the very early 2000s. And then I spent a year at FITS in 2008 and then was asked about coming back in 2013 and then came back for good. So I resigned from Australia and I am now um, an employee at FITS and I spend six or seven or more um, months a year there, depending because I was also for a while until recently had a job in the US. And that's what I regard as my academic home. But there is a little footnote to that, which is that I only went to South Africa for the first time in 1995. And I had no intention of going there earlier because it was a country that was under apartheid. But my father was born there. And so I had very few relatives left in South Africa when I went there. But much of who I, my father was, and to, to many extents who, who I guess I am, has been produced by South Africa. And I was invested in working with students in not only in South Africa, but elsewhere in Africa. And I'm a much more effective teacher in the country than I am from Australia. I mean, you and I can Zoom, but even a decade ago, Zoom wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. And it's entirely different to being in the country. And it is such a wonderful, inspiring place to be. Professor Madison, thank you for your academic research and excellence, your curiosity, and for sharing of it. Thank you. This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 was brought to you by Vets for Good.